Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Will Miller, a political scientist, now employed as an associate vice president with Campus Labs. And with me today is Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Morning, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. How about you, Will? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, it's been obviously a, a week of very interesting <laughs> happenings, I feel like. Nothing, you know, somewhere I look at the week and I'm like, there's nothing earth shattering and there's nothing quote unquote major in terms of development, but we still have, you know, a lot of the same issues that have been percolating for the last two or three weeks still well, showing yeah. up. Longest shutdown ever, for instance. Yeah. You know? There yeah. You and I mean, it's, it's funny. I mean, I think we might as well dive into the shutdown, honestly. I mean, I think talking about what's happening, there's going to be important. In it, and it does seem like not just being the longest in terms of time, but I feel like this week it hit kind of a, a new fever with some people because obviously we now have all of the images floating around of I worked 65 hours and netted zero dollars in pay kind of officially happening. So it's no longer this abstract concept. Um, and I think that obviously, you know, kind of ups the seriousness even for for unattached outsiders. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, that that's when it when you see those pay stubs with zero <laughs> On them that that makes a that makes it an entirely different thing and, and, and you know to me there are a couple of things that occur to me about this is number one once again you know I think had Donald Trump planned this Donald Trump is as you know well he's not a planner right um, but it seemed like as soon as or as recently as mid December it seemed like everyone thought well he's going to go ahead and sign and we'll move things along and so forth then he does this abrupt about face because some people were accusing him of being weak and you can't have that that's sort of like his one of his many hot buttons but if he if he had had a strategy and decided to do this beforehand the administration would have had time to put together some sort of a reasonable strategy for keeping things running at least more or less when negotiations came on but but no, Donald Trump is Captain Chaos, and this is what happens when Captain Chaos is your chief executive. Yeah, and again, I mean, from the planning perspective especially, I mean, this is, I think there's really two ways to think about it. Um, and one is obviously that in his head, I think he does believe there's a plan. Um, but the problem is it involves other people helping with the plan that are unwilling to help him with that plan. And I really think for me, what, I, what I've thought about this week in terms of how Trump has handled the shutdown and all of the politics leading up to it, I mean, when you think about the idea of his background, he's always kind of been a CEO who's been semi-responsible to a board that he can move and adjust as needed. Yeah. And now all of a sudden that's not there. So I do think that this is really showing, um, you know, the, the difference between having some government experience. And again, I'm not saying you have to be a senator, you have to be a house rep. I mean, this is, we don't have city council experience in terms of there are times we have to figure out how to work with others. Um, But I also think it's the American electorate and the American public looking at a president who will do what he says he's going to do or thinks he's going to do, no matter what the impact is. And we're just not used to that. Um, that lack of consideration of kind of the spillover effects, the longer term costs. Um, and like I said, I mean, it's one where I, I look through social media, I look through my traditional media sites that I follow. Um, and, and it's just clear that this emphasizes for me that we still haven't figured out how to deal with Donald Trump. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. There are certain expectations we have, and he he gleefully uh, shatters our expectations and norms and, and that sort of thing, you know. And and everything's really too bad, obviously, for a lot of reasons. Um, one thing I think would be a great idea would be to to avoid this in the future because I hope Donald Trump is a one-off thing, but but we I think we see some of this on the left as well. So I don't know, but. I would love to see Congress pass some sort of automatic continuing resolution legislation. And what I mean by that, for instance, uh, after or during the 2013 shutdown, Republican Rob Portman proposed something like this. And the idea here was to keep funding constant for, I believe it was 120 days, and then decrease it by 1% every 90 days thereafter, you know, presumably to give Congress and the president an incentive to actually pass something. And I think that would actually, I kind of like an idea along those lines so that we don't have that sort of potential crisis when people want to use shutting down the government as leverage for something. I'd like to see the same thing, for instance, for the debt ceiling as well. I think in, in a way you could say that's even more important because if we default on our debt, there's all kinds of horrendous you know, consequences, that sort of thing. But I was wondering, what do you think about that, Will? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's definitely an avenue to consider. And again, I mean, when you look at the the bill and Portman's, I think put it up every year he's been in the Senate. Um, so this isn't a reactionary piece of legislation. I mean, this is definitely more well grounded in the support he has for it. I mean, when you look at the individuals that are introducing this legislation each time, I mean, I think this year you had Portman, Chuck Grassley, Isaacson, Murkowski, Mike Lee, um, just to name a few of them. You know there's support for it, and it really does, I think, reflect better the idea that the shutdown itself, beyond being costly while it's happening, the tremendous cost that goes into actually implementing the shutdown and then pulling us out of the shutdown. Yeah. yeah. Um, and again, I mean, I think the, the public parks are a great example here. I mean, there will be infrastructure needs, there will be cleanup needs in national parks based on just what has happened with, with decreased staffing. Um, over the last two, three weeks, or however long this goes. So, I mean, I think definitely having, you know, Congress kind of take some ownership of this is a way that we can avoid that. Um, because again, I mean, I think people have realized, and I think left and right, we've sort of realized that that shutdowns are intended to work from a political standpoint, not from a efficiency or effectiveness yeah. standpoint. Um, I don't think there's anybody out there arguing that, you know, the government shutdown is going to improve governance in any way. Yeah. And, you know, it also gets into this issue of stability. And this is a bipartisan sort of thing where reasonable people on both sides, they obviously have can have big policy differences. But everyone, especially the business community, as Jay is fond of pointing out, it, it really relies on that stability. And when things are just jerked back and forth like this, that's not good for anyone, whatever your policy preferences are. Absolutely. And I mean, again, I'll give you the firsthand experiences. Um, this week I, I was flying and I flew back through Miami um, in wait times at the Miami airport were astronomical mm -hmm. compared right. to normal. And the other thing I noticed, it was really, again, when you get into the, the disconnect, when we get into the, the cognitive inconsistencies here is I was standing uh, in line behind uh, a middle-aged woman who had very clearly these Trump-Pence bumper stickers um, on both of her bags. And she's thanking the TSA workers for showing up to work as she goes through. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I'm sitting there with like the disconnect of your Trump supporter and you're thanking the TSA worker for showing up. And I see that that's doable. Um, 
but again, it still raises lots of questions that I think we're all sort of sort of working through. And again, from a political end, I mean, I think with the shutdown, obviously the shutdown meeting and the reports of Trump walking out on Pelosi and Schumer raise questions about, you know, it's the longest already, but exactly how long this will go um, is probably a, a really good question at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, government shutdowns, of course, weren't even really a thing until 1980. For folks who don't know, uh, prior to that, when the budget deadline was missed, agencies just kept on spending uh, either with, you know, remaining funds or essentially on credit until a budget was passed. But uh, I think it was the first three years of Jimmy Carter's presidency, he was really upset that Congress never passed the budget on time and he felt there wasn't enough urgency there because things just kept on moving. So he kind of wanted to put a fire under Congress. He asked his attorney general whether, you know, as a matter of law, this kind of unappropriated spending was legal. The attorney general said, um, well, actually, I don't think it is. And he based this on something called the Anti-Deficiency Act of 1870. And there you go. The modern shutdown was was born, essentially. So this is not like a longstanding thing, you know. And that's Jimmy Carter, who we always think of being this kind, gentle, bringing everyone together. <laughs> yeah. And if I remember right, Mike, it was just the FTC that was impacted. I think he shut down like one department for two days or something. It was, so yeah, I mean, it's I, funny to see how we've grown oh on my gosh, this yeah. expanded into the national parks are closed. Sorry, go home. Yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> so definitely interesting. And again, I mean, obviously the, the connecting point here to really, to really turn to for us is uh, Trump's Oval Office address from this week, which, you know, in many ways ties directly to the shutdown, even if it's in his eyes, an indirect connection. Um, but obviously I think we should maybe start by talking about, you know, did this topic really merit that address to the nation in prime time? Um, did it merit a democratic response? Do we think either of these uh, really should have been used? And then how does that you know, correlate to the Obama 2014 right. uh, address that was not aired nationally by um, these main networks? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, of course, it didn't merit a, a national address. I mean, the national emergency here is that Donald Trump isn't getting what he wants. That's about as far as it goes. Uh, but to me, though, I, and a lot of fo- a lot of my friends on the left are saying, well, this is an example of, you know, the, the media favoring Trump over Obama. And there's a double standard. I actually don't believe there's a double standard here, which may may sound surprising. Here's what I think. Uh, the media didn't give Obama his time to talk about immigration in, in 2014, I believe it was, because he was Barack Obama. And it was going to be a pretty staid, boring. I mean, Obama, you listen to him, fairly mostly professorial, sometimes kind of lecturing, kind of not, you know, I mean, the, the nickname for him sometimes, no drama Obama. This is not kind of good TV, right? Whereas Donald Trump, who knows what this guy's going to do? He could go off the handle. I mean, is it possible that he all of a sudden just tosses out an F-bomb? Uh, sure, absolutely. I mean, this is Donald Trump we're talking about. So to me, this decision that the networks made had nothing to do with policy and everything to do with, hey, this could bring in some numbers. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's what happens when you have a media that cares first and foremost about that. And I think the values of kind of ratings and entertainment have have gotten into news division so much that that's what they're more and more basing decisions on. So I think that's why they gave Donald Trump the time, even though they knew that this was even more of a political address than what Barack Obama wanted to do back then. 
Yeah, and again, I mean, I completely agree with you. Um, do I think it was national address worthy? Probably not for an average president, but I think, like you said, for these major networks, this is the first time Donald Trump has actively tried to engage with them for the purpose of getting airtime. Oh, that's a good point. Um, and I think there is something to be said for that, whereas with Obama, I mean, the idea of the, the national addresses were, were fairly typical, and to your point, pretty boring. Um, I think the other difference that we need to mention is that obviously Donald Trump asked for airtime the second week of January. Barack Obama asked for it in the middle of November sweeps week. Yeah. Um, which just, I mean, again, we can argue whether that's a good or a bad call by the, the media channels, but there's something to be said for, do I want to take the Big Bang Theory off to put Barack Obama yeah, on yeah. in the middle of sweeps? Yeah. Um, what do I lose? How do I lose? What's the viewer backlash? Knowing that it wasn't going to be per se a truly emergency of speech then, then either. Um, but again, I mean, I agree with you. So you have to listen to the address. I, I'm, I'm not sure it necessitated primetime coverage. But like you said, if Donald Trump comes to me and I'm working for ABC, NBC, CBS and says, I want 15 minutes, that's the first time he's wanted anything from me besides the opportunity to tweet horrible yeah. things at me. Yeah. Um, so I do think there is some some show there. And again, I think the question really comes back then, Mike, to did they do it because they they want to have an, a more amicable relationship and a partnership there? Or did they do it because they wanted to give him the opportunity to, in their eyes, embarrass himself in front of the national yeah. Uh, public? Yeah. Which, again, I mean, we'll never know the answer to that. But I think there's lots of theories we could throw out in terms of what that could look like. Well, you know, to me, the larger point here is so many folks focus on ideological bias in the media. And, and there, I think there are good reasons to do that, certainly. But to me, and, you know, I've been teaching media politics for a lot of years now. To me, the, the really even much more important biases are these sensationalism, drama kind of biases. That, to me, is what drives the media far more than trying to support liberals or conservatives or something like that, you know? and 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 I think... It's a, it's a much more dangerous bias because it's so much less obvious to people. Absolutely. Um, I think that's absolutely true. And again, I mean, I think that's the, you know, what I would really like to know um, is in terms of how it was presented. Did it, was it the Trump team going and saying, we want to talk about our view on the border wall uh, and what's happening? Or did the Trump team go and say, we want to talk about this national emergency? Or was it presented as that to draw viewership? Um, yeah. And, and that's, again, I, I think you're exactly right with, you know, the way things are presented makes such a big difference. I mean, I'm as guilty as anybody. I'll click on the CNN website and I see bold, all caps, breaking news. <laughs> and I'm like, my gosh, I have to see what this is. And then I'm like, yeah. oh, it's a high speed chase in L.A. It's a Tuesday, um, whatever it looks like. Um, so it's it's really playing on trying to get us to click through. Um, and again, I think the part that we always forget you know, when you talk about teaching politics in the media, politics in the news is. At the end of the day, as much as it's about giving us the news, it's equally as much about those channels being able to deliver us to their advertisers. Yeah. Um, and when we lose sight of that, it's, you know, they want me to click that article because there is somebody that is going to pay them when I click that article. Yep. Um, and that just changes the entire dynamic of, of how we get our information, obviously. Um, now, again, whether we thought it was, was worthy or not, it happened. Um, so I think there's obviously some some debate going on about the substance of the address. Um, obviously we had lots of fact checking going on during his address. We also had lots of editing of fact checking, fact checking sites in the immediate aftermath of the address. Um, so, so what did you think about the actual substance? I think it was typical Donald Trump, a mixture of, uh, you know, almost out and out lies and selective use of statistics to, to mislead people essentially. I mean, the, the problem, the, 
the fundamental problem here is there's no emergency. Certainly, there's a, it's a bad situation at the border. But to make the case that it's a national emergency, you have to play fast and loose with the facts, you know. And so when, when you're saying, uh, like, for instance, he mentioned that, you know, border agents have encountered thousands of illegal immigrant, immigrants trying to enter the country every day, though his own administration says, well, it's actually in the hundreds, you know, and that's so is that a lie? Well, the, the Trumpians would call it hyperbole. So, OK, I'll be generous and call it uh, hyperbole, typical Trumpian sort of talk or, you know, the idea that, well, all this heroin's coming through. But actually, most 90 percent plus of it is coming through at the, the official border crossings and has nothing to do with a wall. And, and not just that, but the overall numbers, if you take a look at the overall numbers and OK, there, you know, obviously the, the liberal talking point is it, the numbers were so much bigger back in the early 2000s. But even if you look at the last, say, five years, according to the Border Patrol, you know, overall apprehensions at the border, which is the measure they use, were actually higher in 2014 and 2016 than they were in 2018. So there's no crisis here. There's a manufactured crisis here because Donald Trump wants his big symbolic wall that's not going to really do anywhere near what, what he wants it to do. Well, actually, it will do exactly what he wants it to do. It will fulfill his promise and make his base happy, but it's horrible policy. And again, I mean, I think the, I think the, the idea of the wall for me comes back to the idea of a wall. Um, and I think that's obviously what we're seeing with Trump at this point, where I'm not sure Trump believes the wall will actually fix the same problems that he's discussing as right. much as the symbolism of if there is this wall and the idea of potentially illegal immigrants walking and then running into this wall and looking up and saying, I'm not supposed to be there is the image he wants. Yeah. Um, and again, I think there's a lot of his supporters that they care more about that symbolic piece of you can't get in as much as they do, whether you can or not. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I think, it, you know, for me, it comes back to the classical type one, type two air. Um, and I'll be honest on this one where I, I, I fall to the, the wall side, not in that I necessarily support the wall or think the wall's the best idea, but I'm okay having some good people left out because I don't want any of the bad ones getting in. Where there are others that are obviously, you know, if we get a few problems, that's okay as long as we're still reaching the, yeah. the goal of helping others and having the borders open. And I think that's just a fundamental worldview. For me, the thing I took from the address to start, from a substantive standpoint, I mean, obviously, I, I noticed from the three or four fact checking sites I looked at, the biggest thing I noted was it was a lot harder for them to say true or false to a lot of the things Trump made in this address. It was mm -hmm. much more needs context, yeah. um, needs to be contextualized different, which in all honesty, I think shows, I'm not going to call it growth, but a progression <laughs> within Trump and his administration in the sense of they are getting better at making political statements political instead of things that can just be outright fact-checked. Um, and outright said this is this is wrong, and I don't know what that's going to mean for for the next two years at least while he's. Um, I'm going to I'm going to disagree with you at least a little bit on this, Will. In that I think when Donald Trump actually has somebody write an address for him, they write it like typical a typical political address. They spin, they take facts out of context, that sort of thing to make a case. And so there are those kind of addresses, and actually those are the addresses that Donald Trump is pretty clearly uncomfortable given he's not very good at those things right <laughs> but then there's the twitter donald trump and the campaign trail rally donald trump where he just lies like hell 
and because it's Donald Trump just being off the cuff Trump. And so there are two different things here. And when he's kind of forced to be presidential, boy, that's just awful for him. And it's like, he reminds me of like some little kid in a new suit for a wedding or a funeral or something. And he just squirming around and so forth. But when it's Trump unleashed, the real Trump, the lies come out because the truth doesn't matter. Eddie, yeah, I don't disagree with that. I mean, there's definitely a difference between Donald Trump sitting down with a teleprompter versus Donald Trump saying off the cuff, I never said Mexico was going to pay for the wall. Yeah. Um, which is like, well, no, here's the <laughs> okay. times you actually did. Um, and again, even as someone on the right, I mean, there's no justifying that. It just is what it is. Yeah. Um, but I will say, Mike, the one thing about that address from a delivery standpoint is I felt like he was more comfortable and more presidential than I'd seen him in a while. Um, and what I mean by that is I feel like that's an address that if you, you know, if, if 50 years from now um, or 100 years from now, we decide to show a Trump address to a bunch of freshman college students and we give them no context and they have no context, they could watch that and think, OK, this guy's acting like we would expect the president to coming back to your norming piece um, within that pedigree, which again, it's just, it, it's, it was a different take. And I thought from a, a presentation standpoint, he did better. And again, I don't know if it's his choice or I don't know if he was just coached to a point of, right. he knew he had to do it that way, but he did seem more composed and collected than the campaign Donald Trump, which sure. again, I think from a, a new presidential model standpoint that Trump's bringing us, we see a blurring of that because he blurs it constantly. Right. Yeah. Um, so we don't know when, you know, the, the idea of does the campaign ever stop? It's clear the campaign has never stopped with Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, but for me, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things in terms of the, the fact checking in those pieces that he and his team just need to be better on is, I mean, don't talk about fentanyl, for example. When you can get online in two seconds and see that, you know, the port of Philadelphia gets more fentanyl than the Mexican border. Too. Yeah. Or, um, or, or the yeah. port of Seattle. Uh -huh. or, yeah. You know, it's, it's not coming up there. So, I mean, there are ways to be political and trying to make your case and your point. You still have to be smart about. It. Yeah. Um, and I think there's still just easy loopholes. And again, I mean, for all I know, we're all being played like puppets and they're intentionally putting some easy, low-hanging fruit for us to find so we don't go digging into something else. Yeah, that, um, that, but again, that's the reality. <laughs> that again. Yeah, that, that, that sounds like the strategy I, I use to get through my dissertation defense, actually. So. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to put some holes in here so I know what you'll focus on. Exactly. You'll these other, yeah, I, I totally understand that. <laughs> um, and I guess, I mean, in reality, one of the things we haven't talked about on the show and you and Jay haven't really hit on is is the idea of a wall in general. Yeah. Um, what do you think the pros and the cons of a physical wall are? Well. You know, I think it seems to me that there are a lot, a lot of experts, people who actually have studied this sort of thing, who would say that, you know, a big, beautiful sea to shining sea wall is is actually would be a bad idea uh, in that, of course, if you're talking about the sort of symbolic sort of wall, this big kind of concrete, whatever, steel structure, even the Border Patrol people say, no, we want something we can actually see through to know what's going on. Uh, I think secondly, people say, well, there's this huge price. If you put up a wall, people will tunnel under it and do this other stuff. And it's just from a, from a cost perspective or from an opportunity cost perspective, even it's not the most effective thing. It, it seems to me that the research suggests that yes, it makes sense to have some walls, but more than that, things like fencing, things like electronic monitoring system, or 
more border patrol agents and more immigration judges to kind of fix the, the, you know, to deal with the system in a more kind of more basic way. And those are the things that we're not, you know, really seeing. For instance, uh, President Trump promised to increase the border patrol and ICE staffing uh, by a, a lot, but the number of border patrol agents has actually been pretty flat throughout his administration. And, uh, you know, we, we've seen some increase in immigration judges, but not nearly what essentially has been suggested or promised or that we would need to actually deal with this. So the wall, I think, from, a, from an actual effectiveness policy standpoint, just doesn't make nearly as much sense. But I would argue that that doesn't matter for Donald Trump because it's, it's all about the symbolism. And the wall is an awesome symbol. Yeah, and again, I mean, I, I'm completely in agreement with you on that. Um, functionally, I, I'm not sure what a wall does. Um, when I look at the cases for the wall, I feel like we're really taking arguments that apply to anything related to just tougher border security. I mean, you know, I, I hear lots of arguments about it's going to save lives because it's going to deter people from making this dark, dangerous crossing attempt. Um, and they're just going to like sit at home and say, well, you know, that wall's there now, so there's yeah. no way I can get in. So I'm just not going to even try. Um, I hear lots of arguments about preservation to some extent on the private property side that, you know, now all of a sudden, you know, we, we have all of these acres of land just inside the border that are national parks. And, you know, this will help make sure that people aren't riding four wheelers through them as they come across the border. But in reality, we're building a giant wall in the middle of this area, too. So I don't know which one's more disruptive. Um, I will say that from a, a crime standpoint, the one argument for the wall that I, I do see um, some merit in is the idea of private property crime in border towns with the sense of it not being as easy for individuals who aren't attempting to immigrate to the United States, but individuals who are attempting to illegally enter the United States, steal, rob, do whatever, and then immediately return back to Mexico. Um, obviously, I mean, I think that's an area where that would make things slightly more difficult for them because I'm not sure, sure. If, a petty, if, if a petty criminal is willing to, to tunnel under to steal somebody's yeah. stereo system and then return <laughs> home. No, um, I think that's an interesting point. And I, my response to that would be, you're almost certainly right, just like how when uh, Mike Pence was called on the whole terrorism thing, you know, terrorists entering in these, in these uh, 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 not through border, not, not through our, our stations, but, you know, in these in over places where you don't have walls. And he said, well, even though there are a lot more that come through Canada, which we're not putting a wall up on, but his, his argument was essentially, well, even one is too many. It's like, well, sure, you can't say, well, it's okay for a terrorist to get through, but you have to ask about opportunity costs. Is this the best way to do this yep. or prevent this kind of thing? And so that's when you get to, well, in some instances, sure, we need walls at certain points. But I think what we need more of is better border security and a better, a better system. And so for that reason, I'd actually be for something like a greatly expanded Secure Fence Act, the thing that was passed in 20, uh, 2006 under, under President Bush. But there's no way Donald Trump would, would sign, I don't think, anything called the Secure Fence Act because of, again, yep. the symbolic. Yeah, and again, I mean, I think at that point, Trump, again, caring about image, caring about posturing, Trump can picture the cartoons already of you know, the little like eight inch fence they sell at Home Depot and Lowe's and that being built across the border and people stepping over it and walking in trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah. Um, so I agree, but I mean, I definitely think one thing I'd, I'd say in general about this is if, if 
some of us or some folks are able to to depoliticize the idea of a wall for a little bit and actually just think about the to your point the opportunity cost of what would this actually do because i'd even say well well i believe on the the crime on the border side the wall would make a difference i'm i'm with you there in terms of that type one type two era of how much am i willing to pay so that i don't have to think about that yeah um and what does that cost look like and again i mean i think there is there is the cost, and this is, you know, one of the things that Trump always pushes. And I mean, we saw him push this during the Oval Office address. Um, it's just a dark view of the world. It's yeah. a dark view of everything. The idea of, you know, I remember, you know, his his comment or his question, his rhetorical question of, you know, how much American blood do we need to have shed before Congress actually acts? Yeah. I mean, that tells you that tells you everything, and that tells you what it's probably going to look like here. Um, but again, it's it's the difference between perception and reality. Yeah. You know, um, did, whether it's crime and violence or not doesn't matter as much as whether people want to believe it's crime and violence. Yeah, no, absolutely. That that's a I totally agree with that. And you know, one other thing that we we haven't mentioned that's come up lately is the, the president's talked about using what he calls military eminent domain to build this wall because a lot of this area is not government land; it's land that private individuals own and. You know, there are a lot of folks who are aren't interested in giving up their land. They don't even feel that it would be right to give up their land for that. And there certainly would be, even if this goes through, there would certainly be a whole bunch of lawsuits about this sort of thing. And it's not necessarily a, a definite agreed upon thing, whether or not some of those lawsuits would be successful or not. And that that used to be the kind of thing that conservatives cared about government taking your land for their own purposes, but uh, uh, there are some at least very pro-Trump conservatives who that doesn't seem to matter quite as much. Exactly. And I also wonder if some of those pro-Trump conservatives, if it would matter if it was their land, I will say that uh, yeah. openly, yeah. Um, how quickly that would change. But I think what's interesting about that is, I mean, I think, I think you're exactly right. I think what would be really fascinating to watch play out as that went through the court systems was obviously the changing geopolitical landscape in Texas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and seeing how that sort of ultimately came to to fruition. And again, the great irony could be, do we end up with Texas having a wall <laughs> and then we have a, a giant gap at New Mexico because their courts decided differently? Yeah. Um, so is it now all of a sudden open season for New Mexico in the eyes of these horrible criminals we assume are coming across the border? Um, so, I mean, I think there's just, again, from the policy and the legal standpoint, a lot of questions that are not going to be, be answered. And again, I think that highlights one thing for me that I always keep pushing on is, you know, we have all of these great debates and arguments over Supreme Court justices. <laughs> State court races make a big difference in what we're doing in terms of federal sur- circuits make a big difference. Because, again, if you're a landowner in Texas, um, you obviously can't just appeal something into the California courts yeah. um, where you might want it to be. So just recognizing that piece just just really brings it big picture. Definitely. So, Mike, I know we had a new Patreon supporter that you wanted to, to talk about here real quick. Yeah, we'd like to thank uh, uh, Seth, our newest Patreon supporter, who writes, uh, I am very glad to finally be able to contribute to a show I have thoroughly enjoyed. And, Seth, we really do appreciate your support. We, we appreciate the support of all of our great Patreon supporters. And it's not just our appreciation you get. If you're a supporter, you have access to my ongoing 12-part Nuts and Bolts of American Politics series. Uh, also, supporters at $5 a month or more get in, get access to this in-depth policy series that Jay and I are doing. And there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. And, and again, it, it really helps us kind of keep the lights on, keep things going. So if you're interested in helping out and joining Seth and all other great supporters, you can go to patreon.com slash politics guys, or just go to politics guys.com slash support. Thanks so much. 
Awesome. I'm glad to have Seth on board as well. Um, one thing, you know, you, you started to hit on it, Mike, but I think it's a, a key to kind of wrap up this border wall discussion and the, the shutdown. The idea of a national emergency, I mean, we touched on it with how the, the speech was sort of presented. Um, but what do you think about the idea of Trump considering declaring this a national emergency and really looking at it yeah. forcing through a border wall regardless of Congress? I think there are a couple of ways to look at it, at least a couple of things I think. is Number one, in terms of the law, it seems to me there's no question that he can declare a national emergency. So that's part one. Now, it's a little more questionable, perhaps, depending on what statute you looked at, whether or not he can then actually build a wall using military funds or other funds. And there are a couple of statutes that, that people have pointed to, but I think that on balance, while there would be legal challenges, especially given the Supreme Court that we have, that probably, yes, that that would pass legal muster. But, but to me, that I guess the, the, bigger, the bigger part of this is, well, again, I get back to that norms idea, right? And that, well, what, is in a what does a national emergency mean? Well, I would argue that the intent of that idea is not at all have to do with construction of a border wall that would take years to complete. That's not a national emergency type of thing. We're talking about floods, invasions, that sort of thing, where you need money right away to stop the flow of X, Y, Z. This is obviously a way to get around a Congress that is not appropriating the funds that the president wants. And to me, well, this is a classic case of executive overreach, the sort of thing that when well, when President Obama did it on immigration, Republicans in Congress went nuts about it. And, and I've argued that rightly so. I think that what President Obama did with DACA was overstepping his power. But the idea that the president would use a fake national emergency to reappropriate funds that Congress has already appropriated or wouldn't appropriate that to me is so fundamentally against the separation of powers that that used to be something that that conservatives especially would be up in arms against. And yet uh, there has been some, to be fair, there has been some conservative criticism of it, even in Congress, but not nearly what I would hope. That's for sure. Yeah, and again, I mean, for me as an institutionalist, I, I, I'm torn on this a lot of different ways. Um, to your point, I think it gets, I think it would get through the Supreme court. Um, for me, my biggest complaint is if you're going to even consider calling it a national emergency, do it, stick with it and act. Um, because, I mean, even with Obama, where I may have disagreed and thought he was overstepping, at least from a process standpoint, he basically said, this is what I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it. This is why I believe it fits the criterion and I'm moving forward. You can't waffle on whether something's an emergency or not. Yeah. Um, turning that into a political hot potato of, you know, I'm going to say it could be a national emergency, but it's not a national emergency right now because I have another means. But if that means falls through, then Lindsey Graham and I are going to be out here arm in arm saying this is a national emergency and this is what <laughs> we're doing. Yeah. Um, and again, I mean, I, th I think I, I could see a case where he argues that it's a national emergency. I mean, I don't think it's one that everybody would agree with. I'm not sure it's one that historically would check the box as easily as a flood or war an attack or something similar. Um but I could see where, you know, there's at least some tangential ways to make that happen. Um, my concern to some extent with this is, is it's a very bureaucratic concern. Um, but I look at things like the fact that last year the Army failed to meet their recruitment goal. 
um, even though retention goes up, they don't meet their recruitment goal. They wanted, I think it was 80,000 recruits and they fell pretty short of that. What does this mean is potential um, applicants, as individuals who are thinking about um, enrolling into our armed services, look and see, do I want to spend my life potentially building a fence because that's where this is falling and that's how our president's acting. Um, and that seems like a, a very down the, down the list type of concern. But when I think 10 years down the road and we think about, you know, obviously having the ability to, to defend ourselves, however, whatever president at times he's appropriate, there, there are lasting impacts, I think, even on this and how it's being politicized. And it's being politicized, obviously, by the president. Yeah. Um, and I think that matters. Yeah. And I think this is something that conservatives and liberals should be concerned about, because no matter who the president is, I mean, you might like the idea of a wall. But if you get it this way, and I'm an institutionalist myself, that, that what that means is that when the, the other party's person is in office, well, then they're going to be able to do what they want. You know, and somebody suggested, I saw this on, on Twitter or something like that. Well, how would you feel if you're a conservative about, say, a President Kamala Harris declaring climate change a national emergency and all of a sudden doing stuff that, whoa, wait a second, she yeah. can't do that. Well, <laughs> no, hey, no, no. <laughs> if Donald Trump sets the precedent for that, absolutely. She can, you know, and so do you really want to open that door? There's a reason why we have separation of powers. There's a reason why Congress appropriates the funds, not the president. So we're going down a really dangerous road here. So for people, even if they want a wall, you really probably want to think twice about it. This is the way you want to get it. And again, there are some, I feel, some uh, uh, some conservatives in Congress who are raising this point, saying they wouldn't necessarily want to go along with this sort of thing. And I just hope that those cooler heads prevail. But honestly, because of how the statutes are written, it was always assumed, I think, that presidents wouldn't be wouldn't just blast all these norms. And so from a legal standpoint, he can do this if he wants to. Um pretty sure. And the only real remedy for a president who decides that he wants to just blast all the norms is a pretty extreme remedy. And that, of course, is the impeachment and removal remedy. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think the impeachment and removal piece, which I, I have such a difficult time seeing that happening. Yeah, yeah. And part of it's because I'm like, if if they're not willing, if it's a Republican in the Senate, especially who is not willing to push back and say, I don't think this is a national emergency. I can't see that person in the same breath saying, and I also want to remove you from office. Yeah. Um, where it's, you know, do the, that's, that's the nuclear option. And if they're not willing yeah. to touch the non-nuclear option, I'm like, how do they, how does that interplay? Um, but I think you're right, especially on the idea of, you know, what you saw on social media and I saw, and I bet all, all of our, a lot of our listeners have seen that idea of, you know, would you be okay with a Democrat declaring climate change? Because I'm a, I'm a big fan of the democratic bargain principle of, you know, if you lose, you lose and you have to suffer for four years. And, you know, I think there's a lot of Republicans that feel like we did our eight years of suffering under Obama and now we have Trump and whether we like it or not, at least it's our turn to be in charge. But you're right. I mean, I sit here and even as someone who sometimes agrees, sometimes disagrees with Trump, what he's doing, how he's doing it, I am more than ever thinking in the back of my mind, what am I going to be willing to tolerate in two years or what would I be willing to tolerate in six years depending? Um, and would I be okay with this? Because if I approve of Trump doing it, I have to be okay with the other side of the coin coming out. Now, again, 
Um, I don't think every American voter is thinking as rationally about that. <laughs> what, what can I get for me? But the idea is typically in my head of, okay, so if I say Trump's okay to do this for this border wall, what are things Obama could have done that he didn't that would have been similar? And how would I have felt about that? Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. And I wish that more people looked at it your way. That's for sure, Will. Yeah, well, it's really taxing and tiring to uh-huh. think about it that way. But every <laughs> yeah, once is. in a while, it's like, you know. He's not going to be president forever. So no matter how much you love Trump, it's got to be thinking about, you know, who comes next and what would be what would we find to be acceptable? Yeah. Um, or at least acknowledge the disconnect. Yeah. Like acknowledge that I'm only OK with it because it's Trump and own that um, changes the discourse at least a little bit, too. Yeah. Um, and I think obviously one last area we can talk about here with Trump, obviously not looking at our border, but obviously looking at the military um, is what's happening with the withdrawal in Syria, which Ooh, is now yeah. um, officially underway. Um, Obviously, it seems like the administration's sort of um, backing off of Trump's plan one way or the other in terms of the now piece. Um, so what do you think about what we're doing? Why do you think we're doing this? Um, what do you think is going to work? Well, first off, I have to say, Will, how I thought I was living in bizarro world when I saw a tweet from Donald Trump that used the word prudent. Um, that just it, it blew my mind. Uh, but. But I love how, you know, first he, uh, he has his tweet uh, this, this last week saying he, he's calling for a prudent withdrawal from Syria and then arguing that, well, this is no different from my original statements and saying that the media is, you know, is, is inaccurately reporting the fact that, um, let's see, our boys, our young women, our men, they're all coming back and they're coming back now. Well, I, I think I know what the word now means. But once again, Donald Trump lies like Hell, um, not a new thing. You know, I, I feel like this is another example of Donald Trump just kind of acting rashly without consulting with anyone. I, I think you can maybe make a case for withdrawing from Syria, but not now. And I actually think that we shouldn't be withdrawing from Syria when I think about who this benefits. This benefits, um, this benefits uh, Russia. This benefits Iran. This is something that our our allies in Israel don't like. I mean, who's winning from this? Well, it seems like all the people that we don't like in the Middle East. So why are we doing this? This isn't like a humongous troop commitment either. This is only a few thousand troops. And so it seems like the loss, the potential loss from this is so much greater than the potential gain that once again, Trump is holding symbolism over good policy. And I just think. I'm happy that the withdrawal is going to be more prudent and that I guess John Bolton and Mike Pompeo sort of prevailed upon the president to do not to not do something insane. But I would argue that we should actually stay in Syria until we feel that the job is done to the extent that we can you know, define that. Yeah. And again, I mean, I, I'd say that I, I have some very similar opinions to you on this in the sense of you know, the the actors involved in Syria are just so diverse. I mean, obviously, at the U.S., you have Russia, you have Iran, you have Turkey, you have um, Israel, obviously, looking at, you know, what Iran could be doing with the Syrian territory. Um, so it's a very complicated piece. I mean, the hard part here, again, is it's it's forcing people to think about issues in multiple dimensions, because I think there are a lot of folks that have been saying, you know, let's bring some of our troops back, let's scale back. But they wouldn't have said, let's start with Syria. 
Yeah. Um, where it's there are ways that we could we could do this and folks that want troops home and maybe feel we're too invested abroad. This probably, to your point, isn't a sizable enough piece that it's going to make a dent in that image. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think you're right. When I saw the uh, being completely transparent to everybody, when I saw the word prudent, I assumed that he had uh, typed some other word, uh, potentially shrewd <laughs> and right clicked and found an adjective. Uh, but again, I mean, I think with with pulling back from Syria and especially doing it too quickly, it takes an instate, you know, a very unstable country suffering from, you know, a seven year civil war of instability. And it just puts them back into kind of the lines then at that point of who's going to come in and start making inroads. I mean, from our end, I mean, do I feel like ISIS has been severely limited within Syria? Absolutely. Do I feel like they're beyond a point where they won't be able to come back once the checks are gone? No, I think that's my big concern is, you know, if our mission was to go in and kind of disarm ISIS in the region, I think we've gotten close. Um, but I don't think we're at a point where we could sit there and formally say they are completely gone. We know for a fact they're not completely gone. Yeah. Um, so it is interesting that Bolton and Pompeo seem to be the ones that keep getting the pull. And again, I think Pompeo, especially we've seen during Trump's first term has, for whatever reason, been able to be a voice that could resonate. What concerns me now for Pompeo is we felt the same thing about Kelly and Mattis who have now left. Yeah. So somebody's got to be next for the whipping boy position. Yeah. And, and um, President President Trump doesn't like to have people around who will speak truth to power. That's that's for sure. Um, but, you know, another thing on this is I think that our Middle East policy since 9-11 has been a bipartisan disaster. And, and to me, when, you know, when I when I teach policy, uh, I always talk about unintended consequences. And the bigger the policy, the more likelihood of this. And if if you would have said. To, to people in 2002, early 2002, hey, in 2019, the Middle East is going to be potentially more unstable than ever. And the biggest change is going to be that Russia and Iran are going to be much bigger players, power brokers in the region than they are now. I think people would say, are you kidding? Um, but this is the situation we've gotten ourselves into. And, and, and I think it's because of this sort of back and forth just horrifically bad policy. And again, I blame the Obama administration on this too. Obviously it was more Republican administration because they've been in power for more of this, but I just see Donald Trump is continuing on in a series of awful decisions that have made the Middle East go from better to worse. The only positive thing in this whole thing is that we're less reliant on their, on their oil than we used to be. But of course that in part is because the fracking, which has its own, series of huge yep. issues for me as well so so my god what a mess yeah and again, I, mean, I think for me too the the piece that keeps coming back and shows to your point how convoluted and complicated this become has become is i mean we look at turkey should we trust turkey to help here <laughs> um and obviously i mean we have you know andrew brunson's been released that's great uh the turks are trying to help us figure out what's happening in saudi arabia um but the the issue I have is we still have U.S. lawmakers that are sitting there, you know, around Thanksgiving, around Christmas, basically arguing that the Trump administration needs to not deliver fighter jets to Turkey um, because Turkey's also buying defense systems from Russia. Right. So when you have these players that are so involved in multiple ways, I mean, how do we handle that in the sense of, I mean, especially thinking about, you know, the F-35, uh, which for me is just a, a mm -hmm. lightning bolt in this situation. Because Turkey actually produces a bunch of the parts. 
we put it together and then we sell it back to them and we're sitting there arguing that piece. So, I mean, if this is a country where we can't figure out if they can use our fighter jets with Russian defense system and we feel trusting of them, and they're the group that we're thinking, okay, maybe they can be the power broker in Syria once we leave that brings different parties to the table. I just, again, to your point, I just don't see how this plays out in the way that a year from now we're all sitting there saying, boy, this just worked out well for everyone. Yeah, yeah and um, it, you know, I think that the simple solution is to say, well, let's just bring our bring our troops home. And that's kind of the Trump, the Trump sort of way is look for the simple solution. But given what we've seen historically, not just in decades, but, you know, forever, uh, once once you have that vacuum of power, someone's going to fill that. And if it's not us, it's going to be people that we can trust a lot less than us. And I mean, Turkey used to be kind of a democracy, but who, who are we kidding? They're not anymore. Yeah. Obviously, Russia's the same way. So there are going to be some bad actors that fill that vacuum that we create. And do we really want that? Is that really good long term for for world peace and security and stability? I'd say heck no. Yeah. And again, I mean, I, I think it's the Turkey part. It, I, my, my getaway from politics and the reality of the world is to watch sports. And Turkey has ruined the NBA for me this week, even. Okay. Um, I don't know. If, yeah, for <laughs> listeners, I mean, you have an NBA player for the Knicks saying he won't travel to London with the team um, because he's spoken out against the administration, is convinced he will be assassinated when he's there. And another NBA player who works uh, with the Turkish government saying how completely nonsensical this is so from a democratic standpoint we know it's not necessarily going to be the equivalent of us filling the gap so i mean i find myself typically saying i want troops to come home when they can come home Mm -hmm. but what i don't want to have happen is troops leave syria now especially the way trump originally said immediately versus more of a a tiered departure and then five years from now they're sent back into a much worse situation because we leave today Um, once we've gone and committed you got to see it through yeah well and you know another thing that occurs to me just now is I seem to recall Donald Trump early on, maybe even during the campaign, saying that, you know, he had these plans to end all these wars and so forth, but he wouldn't tell anyone because it would be stupid to let your enemy know your intentions, and, which is a lot of the critique from the Obama with announced withdrawals, which is exactly what Donald Trump is essentially doing here. But again, consistency is not a hallmark of Donald Trump. Agreed. And again, I would say out of all of this, Trump's biggest concern is probably that Bush beat him to standing on the, the carrier <laughs> with the bomber jacket, making the big announcement. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, but again, I think it'll be interesting to watch what kind of happens and to, to see how this this ultimately plays out. Definitely. So that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you like what you heard. Listener support, obviously, is Mike. Mike mentioned with our new Patreon supporter is what keeps our show going, and we obviously truly appreciate it. Uh, subscribing to the show also helps, so to sharing episodes with friends, family, or other folks you think might enjoy listening to the politics guys, and it's easy to do in your podcast app. Uh, click on the share symbol uh, and go from there. Word of mouth is the best advertising we can get, and we obviously greatly appreciate that, including leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes to help us out. If you have questions, comments, corrections, or just some random thought that you'd like to share with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguy.com. Or you can head to our Facebook page and message us where we post throughout the week. It's facebook.com forward slash politics guys page. And we're also on Twitter at politics guys. The executive producers of the politics guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, Bruce Johnson, and Will Miller. This show is produced by Will Miller. We'll be back with a new show next week. We'll hope you join us. <laughs>